Well, I invite you to turn back with me again to Psalm 96 this morning. Psalm 96 is where we're going to be. And I want to preach a message to you this morning concerning the subject of worship. The subject of worship. So I have a title of the psalm. I've titled it in the past, The Driving Glory of God. But this morning I want to give you the title, A Call to Glorious Worship. A Call to Glorious Worship. Let me read Psalm 96 in your hearing yet again. These are the words of God. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and uh, beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. William Temple said, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. In our day, many unbiblical views of worship abound. Many people believe that the worship of the church are the three songs they sing on Sunday morning. And they will have groups. Uh, They will call them worship teams. (laughs) They will ordain men and call them worship pastors. And uh, the whole scope of their ministry is simply to lead a few songs on Sunday. Well, let me say to you that the worship of God is far more than simply singing three hymns on Sunday, though that certainly is included in our worship. But worship is the DNA of who we are as Christians. The Westminster Catechism says that you are placed on this earth. God created you. Your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God is to worship God. To worship God is to encapsulate the reason why he has put you on this earth. Therefore, worship is not a minor subject, and our worship is not reductionistic. We cannot reduce it down to simply uh, singing or simply uh, one act that we may or may not do. Our worship can be viewed rightly uh, as 
personal worship or family devotional worship and corporate worship. So we worship God as individuals, hopefully. Um, We worship God as families. All of you should be worshiping God at home in your families. Uh, It's really a rebuke to the state of theology today in America. The, The framers of our 1689 London Baptist Confession in the preface They wrote in the 1600s that the reason for the decline of religion in England was a failure to worship God as a family. So we have worship as families. The principles, though, will be different from personal and family worship than they will be for corporate worship. Corporate worship, of course, refers to the worship that takes place when the church is gathered together. And when the church is gathered together for the purpose of worship, we must only worship in the way that God has commanded in His Word. We must not add to, we must not take away from when we gather for the purpose of worship. So I want us to turn our attention to Psalm 96. And what I want to specifically do this morning I want us to look at worship in correlation with the the grand theme of the glory of God. And so, again, I give you the title, A Call to Glorious Worship. It's obvious from a cursory reading of this psalm that it is one of praise. It is a psalm of praise. The psalms have different categories. Psalms of lament, psalms of of rejoicing, uh, exilic psalms. This is a psalm of praise praise as all the people throughout all the earth are repeatedly besought to come and worship the Lord. It is also a missional psalm and there's definitely a correlation uh, because of, uh, there's definitely a correlation between worship and missions. But we need to understand the proper connection in his magnum opus, so to speak, one of his most uh, prolific books, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. The, the, the opening line to that book is uh, wor- or missions is not the ultimate chief end of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't exist. So the goal even in our missions is to cause the nations, to cause unbelievers to worship the Lord. What we want from unbelievers is not for them to, confer- to conform their behavior to a set standard that we have. It's not for them to come and start attending church. It's not for them to start reading their Bibles. Our, our, our desire for unbelievers is that they would truly worship the Lord from the heart. That's our great desire. So this is a missional psalm. As God's people are commanded to proclaim the excellencies of their God and King far and wide. I believe this psalm also points to the latter day glory of the church as Gentiles will stream into it, and as the gospel will prosper among every kindred and every tribe. But perhaps the core message of this psalm and its central thrust deals with something that is a bit deeper than that. In Psalm 96, we find that the exhortation to worship and the exhortation to evangelize and the fruit of all of those endeavors comes down to the basis of our motive for all that we do in the Christian life and all of our worship. Why do we worship? That's that's an important question for us to answer. Why do we worship? Do we just worship because we're we're commanded to? Uh, Do we just worship because that's the cultural thing to do on Sundays? Why do we worship? What is the motivation for our worship? And let me say to you that motives 
are very important in the Christian life. God not only cares about what we do, He cares about why we do it. That which drives us and ignites us and moves us and encourages us matters to God. Pure motives propel us in the right direction, whereas perverse motives propel us in the wrong direction. You cannot do a truly good work with the wrong motives. This is why we affirm that those who are unbelieving and totally depraved cannot, in the truest sense, do anything good. That's why Paul says, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. That's why Isaiah says, even your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Because motives matter to God. For the Christian, there is one motive that is to be always above all others. Other motives are but subsidiary to this one grand motive. Nothing should ever set our hearts ablaze like this one supreme motive. The master motive in the Christian life is the glory of God. The glory of God is to be that which motivates you in everything that you do as a Christian. Paul says in 1 Corinthians actually, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. This includes our worship. Why do we worship? We worship because of the glory of God. This must be what drives us if we are really to do a work for the Lord. If we're driven by the praise of man, we're going to burn out. If we're driven by our own emotions and our own feelings, we're going to be wishy-washy. If we're driven by societal and peer pressure, we're not going to endure when hardship comes. Churches that gather out of mere convenience will be the first to close their doors when any sort of fiery persecution comes their way. But those who gather to worship because they're motivated by the glory of God will have the strength to go on even in tough times. This includes our missional endeavors, includes our duties of, of devotion, includes the reason why we wake up in the morning and open up the book that God has written to us because we see him as glorious. Let me say to you that that's what a Christian is. The thing that separates us from lost people is that we see God as glorious and they don't. Well, what does it mean to see God as glorious? What is the glory of God? The glory of God is difficult to define because it is not a concrete noun. It's an abstract noun. The, glory of, the word glory is not like the word book. It's easy to define the word book. If you were to meet someone who had never heard of a book and you were to use the word book and they would say, could you define that word for me? You could say, absolutely, no problem. It's this item that has a cover and within the cover there are pages that are glued or sewn together and on those pages there are words and you open the book you open its two covers and you read the words on the pages and they would be able to understand your definition of a book they would be able if they saw a book to recognize it and say that's a book but the word glory is not like that 
The word glory is, is more like the word beauty. You might say, well, does that mean that glory is subjective? No, not at all. God gives an objective definition for the word glory. The glory of God are the attributes of God going public. The glory of God are the visible manifestations of who God is. The glory of God is accompanied with the power of God to enable you to rightly perceive who God is and his attributes. So, in order for you to see God as glorious, two things. You must have an intellectual understanding of God's attributes. We cannot see God as glorious if we know nothing about him. And so many fill to overflowing in churches where uh, they sing songs like, uh, I felt an angel's wing brush me on the face. Uh, and we don't sing songs like that because they're stupid. Right. One time I thought I, I felt an angel's wing brush me on the face, but it was just Jackson getting up to blow his nose. No, we sing songs and we preach sermons and we think about scripture that contains rich truth of who God is. Amen. So we can't worship him and we can't see him in glo as glorious if we know nothing about him. But it's not just that. And I want to be very dogmatic about this because I just told you about one ditch. But there's another ditch. And there's a ditch that sadly will affect the more intellectual, reformed, leaning uh, circles of Christianity that think as long as we have our systematics down, we're, we're glorifying God and we're worshiping Him. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, the Father is seeking those who will worship me in spirit and truth. Not just truth and not just spirit. Spirit and truth. So what does it mean to see God as glorious? Yes, you must have this cognitive recognition of his attributes and an understanding of who he is, but you must also love what you see. Amen. And you perceive that God is sovereign and omniscient and omnipotent and yeah, he has a seity about him. You must see that and you must love that in order to see God as glorious. And you cannot do that without the Spirit of God changing your affections, regenerating you, giving you a new heart with new desires, sanctifying you so that you can see God as glorious. <coughs> and when you see God as glorious, your worship is what you do in response to what you see. So, so many people think, so many Christians think, my spiritual problems are a result of a lack of discipline. And, and that's true to a degree. You, you think the reason why I can't overcome my sins is because I'm not disciplined enough. The reason why I can't read my Bible consistently is because I'm not disciplined enough. 
The reason why I have such a weak, anemic prayer life is because I'm not disciplined enough. But do you know what the problem with that is? The problem with that is you put all of the responsibility on the, the strength of your own flesh. You've said, if only I was stronger, I would read my Bible and I would pray and I would study and I would uh, be more giving and be more generous and be more faithful to the church and I would maybe find some victory over these besetting sins. Well, let me suggest to you that though discipline is a fundamental part of the Christian life and all of us must be disciplined and we must be practicing denial of self for the greater purposes of God, let me suggest to you that your ultimate problem is one of motivation. You don't see God as glorious as you ought to see him. None of us do. None of us do. So, when seeking for victory over besetting sins, and when seeking to cultivate true spirituality, quit looking to what you can do in the strength of your flesh, and look to God. Look to who He is. And fall in love with what you see. And if you grow in your love for God, you're going to grow in your prayer life. If you grow in your love for God, you're going to want to read the Bible. If you grow in your love for God, you're going to want to assemble with his people. If you grow in your love for God, you're going to grow in your hatred for your own sin. Many of, if not all, of my own failures in the Christian life have resulted in relying on myself to perform and not on the Spirit to work within me. You need the Spirit of God to minister to your heart, to cut away your besetting sins, and to invigorate and enliven your passion for His glory. You need to see Him as glorious. This must be your motivation for worship. So now let's look to Psalm 96. And I want to break it down under two headings with a whole bunch of subheadings. The first thing I want you to see from Psalm 96 is this. I want you to see the call to worship in verses 1 through 3. The call to worship. The psalmist begins, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. The call to worship begins with an exhortation to sing. In fact, three times God will petition us to sing. It's a common uh, literary device that we find in the Psalms, repetition, and we find it with singing and with giving in Psalm 96. You are exhorted to sing. God is pleased when men and women unite their voices to praise Him in song, so much so that He mandates singing as a required element of our worship. If we did not sing in our worship services, we rightly could not call them biblical worship services. You are commanded to sing. The new song that we are commanded to sing doesn't refer to a particular hymn. Um, it refers to the song of the redeemed. It refers to the song that is not like the one that the natural man sings who is still dead in his sins. It refers to a song that is sung by one who has experienced the redemptive grace of God and has encountered his glory. It is a new song. 
It is a song that you couldn't sing before you came into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the song that, that the psalmist speaks about when he says, He dug me out of the miry pit and he put my feet upon the solid rock and he put a song within my mouth. Singing is so essential to Christian worship. And I know that for many of you, it's something new. You didn't grow up in a home that sang. Uh, you never went to a church that sang. Uh, maybe you went to a place where uh, there were some words on the screen, but the rock band on the stage was so loud, it didn't really matter if you sang at all. And now here you are in a, in a little tiny church where we need voices to fill up this room in our singing. We intentionally design our services so that the element of worship that is emphasized is the congregational singing of God's people. We don't have soloists that get up to perform. We have minimal instrumentation because the point of instrumentation is really only to facilitate the voices. It's not to entertain. We emphasize congregational singing. I think this is especially challenging for men um, because naturally... God has given the grace of singing to the female sex more so oftentimes than he gives it to us. But that does not alleviate us of this command to sing. Praise God that the Bible commands us to make a joyful noise and not an in-tune noise. Do you know what that means? That means that your difficulty in singing and the fact that you're not very good at it doesn't matter at all in terms of the command to sing. You are commanded to sing. And if you are good at it, Practice. Why do we look at singing differently than the way we look at other things? If somebody says, well, you know, I'm just not good at reading my Bible. We don't say, well, that's all right. You don't have to read your Bible. Well, I'm just, I just not really all that good in my prayer closet. I struggle to pray. Well, that's okay. Uh, you're, you're alleviated of the command to pray. Well, men and women, work on your congregational singing. Take a hymnal home. Familiarize yourself with it. Turn off some of the secular music you listen to and listen to the hymns. Familiarize yourself with the praises of God's people so that when you come together to worship, you're prepared and you're ready and you're excited and you're able to participate in a very lively way. The largest book in the Bible is a song book. That's how important singing is to God's people. Redemptive history is bookended with singing. Let me show that to you. In Job 38, Job 38, in verse 4, God is, is talking to Job and he says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations therefore fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars, that's referring to the angels, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When God created the earth, there was singing and there was shouting and there was worship. Worship, even before Adam and Eve were created. Worship is older than the human race itself. The angels exist to worship him and then in revelation 15 revelation 15 notice what's taking place at the end of the age 
Revelation 15, verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Do you see the common themes here? Whenever we see worship, we always see glory, and we always see holiness somewhere right around the corner. Thou only art holy. Holy for, here's another one, all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgment are made manifest. God is desiring all the nations to come and worship him as glorious in holiness. This call to worship in Psalm 96 is indiscriminate. This praise was to go forth from Israel and encompass the whole earth. No corner of the earth is to be silent. No race, no ethnicity, no culture is to be dumb. This is a worldwide summons to turn from idols and worship the one true and living God. That same praise ought to go forth from this church into all the earth. May we be a people characterized and known for our worship. All the earth Jehovah made and all the earth must sing to him. Sing unto the Lord. He goes on, verse 2, and bless his name. When we sing unto the Lord, we are blessing His name. Again, we're focused on who He is. His name is representative of who He is. The name of God is the sum and substance of His attributes. All that He is is wrapped up in His name. We don't sing songs that sound like you could change two or three words and then go and sing them to your girlfriend. We sing songs to Jehovah. Uh, This is kind of corny, but it's good for you to to remember. I heard a preacher one time say that hymns must be sung to him. Hymns must be sung to him. We don't, as wonderful as it is, I I don't want to sing a song about how sweet it is to hold a newborn baby. I want to sing a song about him. And I want to praise him. I want to sing unto him and glorify him. Show forth his salvation from day to day, the psalmist goes on. We show forth the salvation of the Lord by worshiping him as saved people. How do we show forth the salvation? If if a lost person came up to you and, and said, would you show me what salvation looks like? Would you be able to point to your own life? That's a sobering question, isn't it? Would you be able to say to them, not in any kind of proud or arrogant way, but would you be able to say to them, if you want to see what it looks like when the Lord saves a person, look at me. For I once was lost, and I once lived in darkness, and I once was bound up in sin, and now by His grace alone I have been changed and I have been transformed, and this is what it looks like when God saves someone. Or would you be ashamed for a lost person to look at your life and say, That's what it means to be saved. Where's the difference? Where's the distinction? You're not living to worship God. You're not living for the chief end of glorifying Him forever. You're living for yourself. You're no different than me. 
May our worship never mimic the entertainment that so enamors the world. We gather as a church, we observe his ordinances, we preach his gospel, we proclaim his goodness, and we live after the pattern of his holiness. And by doing so, we show forth his salvation from day to day. And that's a part of our worship. That's a part of our worship. That's why gathering as a church and singing and baptism and the Lord's Supper and preaching, these are all elements of worship. May your life be one of worship. We do these things from day to day. Worshiping the Lord is like breathing air for the Christian. Not only for an hour on Sundays. We show forth His salvation from day to day. It's basic and fundamental. We must worship God from the heart all the time. All of Christ for all of life. That's our, that's our, our goal. We want to to break down these barriers that compartmentalize our lives. What do I mean by that? I mean, your Christian life is not a chest of drawers. Your life is not a chest of drawers. Where you pull out one drawer, that's your Christian drawer, and then you pour out another drawer, and that's your hobby drawer. Then you pull out another drawer, and that's your your work drawer. your, 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 Your life is a web with everything interconnected. And yes, you must... Uh, participate in secular activities. You must go to work uh, Monday morning if you want to have food Monday night. I understand that, but you must do all of those things realizing that you're a Christian and you are to worship God. And so the psalmist goes on. Part of our worship is declaring his glory among the heathen. The heathen, King James just refers to Gentiles and those who do not know God. And so this begs the question, how are the heathen supposed to sing? Because they're commanded to sing, right? Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Well, how are the heathen supposed to sing to the praise and for the glory of God when they know nothing about it? We are to declare it to them. Notice, we're not to declare the command to sing to the heathen. When we engage in street preaching, I don't think I've ever preached on the required elements of corporate worship. We're to declare the glory of God. Now I want you to connect these two thoughts, glory and worship. Connect these two thoughts. We declare the glory of God to the heathen because if they come to see God as glorious, they will worship Him. They will. So when someone says to me, I'm a Christian and I have no need for a corporate worship and I have no need for the church, they don't see God as glorious. Because if you see God as glorious, you're going to worship Him. You can't help yourself. You must worship Him. You must worship Him. Declare His glory among the heathen. We therefore must declare His attributes. Because the minute we say, God is glorious... And they say, what does that mean? We then will declare, well, that means that he's the God of love and he's the God of righteousness and he's the God of wrath and he's the God of holiness and he has all of these attributes that he gives us in his word and he describes himself so that we can perceive who he is. And there is absolutely no better way to declare the glory of God and to manifest his attributes 
than to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because nowhere are the attributes of God more fully displayed than on the cross. On the cross, we see the love of God. We see the wrath of God. We see the justice of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the sovereignty of God. We even see the creative power of God as God, through the cross, was recreating a people who would come to be His. So we preach the gospel. Declare His glory among the heathen. Preach the gospel in all the earth to every creature. The gospel message shall be published until it is received by the heathen nations. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached, Jesus says, and then the end will come. This psalm will be fulfilled because God will receive the worship that he is owed. Is that not a sublime motivation for you to worship him? Is that not a sublime motivation for you to share him with others? And go back and check your own hearts and check your own motives. When you witness to someone, what is your ultimate motivation? Are you witnessing to them because you love them and you you just can't bear the thought of them going to hell? It's a good motivation, but it's not your ultimate motivation. Are you witnessing to them and inviting them to church because you'd like to see a visitor here? That's a great motivation, but it's not your ultimate motivation. Are you witnessing to them so that you can appear to be a really zealous Christian? Well, that's not a good motivation at all. Your ultimate motivation is because you desire God to receive the glory that he's owed. Paul Washer gives the illustration about speaking with prospective missionaries to South America. And I've heard Paul say that he he gets calls from missionaries and they call him and they say, Brother Paul, I want to come to Peru. Oh, I want to come to Peru. I just can't bear the thought of those tribal Indians who don't know God and they're going to die and they're going to go to hell. And I've I've spent, spent all night last night up agonizing in prayer. I couldn't sleep because those people don't know the gospel and they're going to go to hell. And Paul says, well, that's, that's all fine and well. That's good. There's a greater motivation than that. And he asks, have you ever spent a sleepless night because you know that there is a place where God is not glorified? I want to go to the jungle because there's people there in the jungle that don't give God the glory that he is due. That's the difference between a man-centered and a God-centered view of ministry. We worship, we preach, we pray, we evangelize because we want to see God receive more worship. And we want to see others come to view Him as glorious. When our gospel preaching is rejected, it should only fuel our desire to continually proclaim the message of Christ because it's only a matter of time before the heathen are overcome by the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit and they too shall worship with us. When unbelievers reject the gospel and it discourages us, the problem is not that they don't believe it, the problem is that we don't believe it. Do you really believe in the power of the gospel? Do you really believe in the command of this psalm? and the surety of the Holy Spirit to bring it to pass, that God will find worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that the heathen will come and they will give glory, laud, and honor to God Most High. 
God has ensured by a sovereign decree that his son will have a people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. Of course, I'm not preaching any sort of universalism. I'm not telling you that every human will will one day um, come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ unequivocally, uh, but all that will be left after the judgment will. God will not allow anyone who doesn't see him as glorious to ever enter into his presence. What a, what a motivation to proclaim the glory of God. What a motivation to, to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a call to worship this is. And what a privilege for us as mortal men to be invited to praise the glorious triune God. Secondly, I want you to see the cause for worship, beginning in verse 4. The cause. We have the call and we have the cause. The cause for worship. We know the ultimate motivation is the glory of God. That's what motivates our worship. But God also graciously gives us some specific items that we can focus on in our worship. And I want to look at those in Psalm 96. He says in verse 4, the psalmist says, For... For denotes causality. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Uh, This is not a baseless call given for no reason. We worship God because he is great. Nothing in our worship then should be little. We're not called to praise God from the smallness of heart, but from the largeness of our heart. The Bible says that we're lively stones, but some of us come to worship and act like dead rocks. Our worship should be great. And it should come from the heart. Not not manufacturing greatness. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm not talking about hand clapping and hand raising and shouting and screaming and calling it spirit-filled worship. I'm talking about a worship that overflows and gives us a great desire We cannot praise him too much. We cannot praise him too often. We cannot praise him too zealously. We cannot praise him too carefully. We cannot praise him too joyfully. He is to be feared above all gods. Our worship should be great. It should be spirit-filled. But it should never be lackadaisical, confusing, or irreverent. For there's nothing casual about God. I believe this applies to every aspect of our worship. When we stand, when we sit, the volume of our voices, the attentiveness that we give to preaching and prayer and the word of God, he is to be feared above all gods. He is to be held in trembling awe. A holy fear of God is the spirit of true Religion. This isn't a fear that causes you to to be scared of entering into his presence. This is a fear that causes you to revere and respect him above all things. You come into this place trembling because you don't want to do anything that would bring any dishonor to him. When the church gathers for worship, we need to put all flippant conversation aside. When the church gathers for worship and the call of worship is given out from that call of worship to that benediction, we are transcending from the secular to the sacred. 
And we fear him above all gods. The greatness of God and the awe he produces in the hearts of men and women serve as the general cause for our worship. And now falling under this overarching banner, there's several specific causes for our worship. And I want to give them to you from Psalm 96. Number one, we worship God because of creation. Because of creation. Look at verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What is an idol? An idol is anything that would compete for the worship that belongs to God alone. We live in a country, you might think, well, America's not as idolatrous as other countries like India and China with all the, the Hindu relics and temples and statues and burning incense. An idol is not necessarily just something that is formed out of wood or stone and set upon a pedestal to be bowed down to. An idol is anything, anything that would compete for the worship that belongs to God alone. And you say, well, I don't worship anything but God. Remember the quote there from William Temple in his book on worship. To worship God is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God. What are you feeding your mind? What are you feeding your mind? If you are feeding your mind a consistent diet of filth and you are enamored by the things of this world, you are falling into idolatry because you're starving your mind of the truth of God that worship commands. The imagination. We worship God. We we purge the imagination by the beauty of God. When you allow your mind to gaze upon filth, to gaze upon carnality, your imagination becomes a cesspool that breeds sin. And some of you come to church on a Sunday morning and you sit in the pews and you try to worship God and an image pops into your mind that is so ungodly and so wicked because Thursday night you allowed your mind to indulge in carnality. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. If you're struggling to focus upon the worship of God when you're gathered with the church because of the carnality that you've allowed in your mind, you're committing idolatry. You're hindering your ability to worship God the way that he commands. And we open the heart to the love of God. What do you love? Where's your affections? Do you love God above all things? Or do you love God when it's convenient for you to love him? When the travel... Little League team doesn't have a tournament, then I'll love God. Idols do not always come in the form of of a wood statue, especially in modern America. They come in the form of, of so many things that in and of themselves may be harmless. But when we allow them to compete with the worship of God, they are dastardly idolatrous. And finally, William Temple says, to worship God is to devote the will to the purpose of God. Is God the forefront of all your thoughts? And and let me say to you, before I'm asking you any of these questions, I had to ask them to myself. And I had to confess sins. And I had to see the hidden evils of my own heart as I soberly confronted myself with these questions. My will is not always devoted to the purpose of God. My will is oftentimes devoted to the purpose of kin. That's idolatry. It's idolatry. 
Why do you do the things that you do? Before you just write it off and say, oh, that's harmless. I want you to ask the question, where's the purpose of God in that action? How am I glorifying Him and worshiping Him through this? We worship God for creation. You say, well, where's that? It's in the second part of the verse. I'm hung up on, on the first part of the verse. But he says, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. God, the true and living God, is contrasted with the idols because idols are, are nothing. They're non-entities. They don't produce anything. But God is the one who's created the heavens, and that includes the idols. God alone has creative rights over all that was made and anything that seeks to occupy his place as creator is an idol. Why should you worship God? Very simply because God made you. He made you. He created you. But think about that. Everything, every good gift that you have, your life, your being, your existence, it's because he made you. And he didn't make you by accident. You are not the, the, the result of stardust that by happenstance collided and exploded and then an amoeba was created and then through the process of billion years accidentally you came into the world. You are here because a sovereign God personally and intimately chose to create you. And he created you not only but he created you so that you could have a relationship with him and you could come to worship him as your creator. Secondly, we worship God because of his character. Look at verse six. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Honor and majesty characterize his presence. Strength and beauty comfort his people. Wherever God is, there's honor and majesty. But yet he gives us these attributes of strength and beauty to reassure us that he will supply. What God requires, he also supplies. So if God has required you to worship and he's required you to sing and he's required you to devote yourself to him, by the power of his spirit, he's going to give you the necessary strength. He's the God of all strength. He's going to give you the strength to perform that which he's required you to do. You say, well, I don't have time to read my Bible and pray in the morning. I'm too busy. Oh, you do what God has required of you to do, and he's going to give you the strength to do it. You say, well, I, I can't sing. I, I, I'm tone deaf. Well, you sing to the Lord as joyfully as you know how, and he's going to give you the strength to do it. You say, well, I, I don't have anything to give, and, and my serving abilities are so limited. You just devote yourself to God and his people and develop a heart that desires to give and desires to be generous, and God will equip you with everything you need to glorify him. We worship God because of his character, honor and majesty, and strength and beauty. Oh, the beauty of God. Sometimes we can get so caught up in... in Jesus is not a person... To be studied, he's a person to be loved and worshipped. You can't worship and love him if you don't study him. But ultimately, the chief end of Christianity is not just to say, well, my doctrine of Christology is phenomenal. I could write you a hundred-page dissertation on the hypostatic union. Whoop-de-doo, but do you love him? Do you love him? You know a lot about your wife, men, and 
women, you know a lot about your husband. And, and some of those things you like and some of those things you, you maybe could live without. But why do you love them? Is it because you sat down and you made a list of all the good things and all the bad things and you said, well, what I see is, you know, the scale tips to one direction and so I love them. No, you, you love them because you see them as beautiful. You see them as beautiful. And that's why we love the Lord. We see him as beautiful. He's beautiful. We worship him. We worship him because of his character. Thirdly, we worship him because of a conscription. Look at verses 7 through 9. Again, this is repeated three times. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. You say, well, you're saying that we worship the Lord simply because we see him as beautiful and uh, because we see him as glory, so it's all in the hearts. If I don't see those things, then I don't have to worship. Well, uh, you're, you're only half right, but you're also half wrong. Because, yes, we worship from the heart, but it's also a command that we worship God. We worship him from conscription. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of God and the means of grace and the way he ministers to his people. Have you ever noticed that at times when you don't feel like doing what you know you should be doing, but you, 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 you do it, you give yourself to it, that the Lord gives you the grace to enjoy it? Any of you have ever, have any of you ever had this experience? You're tired, you're worn out, you know you need to read your Bible, you know you need to keep up with that reading plan, but you're just so tired, but you say, I'm going to read my Bible as hard as it may be, and you open up your Bible and you begin to read, and God just ministers to you and blesses you, and you think, praise the Lord, I'm so glad I did this. Have any of you, because I have, have any of you ever felt, oh man, I've worked all day, and now it's 7 o'clock on Wednesday. I don't know if I can make it through prayer meeting without falling asleep. And you come on Wednesday night, and the Lord just blesses you, and you leave with tears in your eyes, and you leave rebuked because you were thinking, oh, how much I just want to go home and get into bed. And then you think, there's nothing more I would have rather done than spent that hour with God and his people. That's how the conscription works. So all of these things that God conscribes you to do, if you're looking at it thinking, oh, I don't know if I can do this, remember, he's the God of strength and beauty. Amen. Give unto the Lord. O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord the glory and strength. Now, this, of course, we understand is talking about ascribed glory. There's a difference between ascribed glory and intrinsic glory. Intrinsic glory is that glory which God possesses in and of himself. But ascribed glory is the glory we give to him when we see him and we say, yes, you are glorious. Yes, you are glorious. You say, well, that sounds egotistical. Why would God need us to affirm that he's glorious? No, friend, it's a blessing and it's a privilege for you to see him for who he is. How depressing, how sad it is that there are lost souls that walk around. They know of God, but they don't know who he is. They have no idea how beautiful his character is. Oh, may we go and proclaim that character to them. And may we tell them that the greatest privilege you will ever have is to give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Notice right here in Psalm 96, bring an offering and come into his courts. 
Bring an offering. Uh, this refers to material possessions that we give to the Lord. And we don't live in a bartering agricultural economy, so for us that means finances. Financial giving is an essential part of your worship. It's your worship. You're worshiping God because you are acknowledging, Lord, you own everything. You have stewarded me money to be able to take care of myself, but my ultimate purpose is to glorify you, and the purpose of God is to be always before me. Therefore, I should steward my finances so that I can keep that great purpose as number one. Developing a spirit and the grace of giving is the first rung of biblical Christianity. The first rung of biblical Christianity. I have a pastor friend of mine who told me, he says, I I don't know very much about our church's finances. And that's a good thing if a pastor can be in that situation. He says, but I have told the deacon that oversees our finances. If I ever ask a man or a family to lead a Bible study or host an event or uh, take, take a leadership role and you know that they do not faithfully give. I, want, I don't want specifics, but I want you to come and I want you to tell me that maybe I should reconsider that decision because I don't care how much theology they know. I don't care how kind and happy they are. I, I don't care uh, how, how much they, they may be a blessing to everyone. If they haven't developed the grace of giving, they're spiritually immature and they don't need to stand behind the pulpit. Bring an offering and come into his courts. And again, it comes from the heart. It comes from the heart. If, if you're looking at your pay stub every Friday and you pull out a calculator and you divide it by 10 and then you write a check for the cent, and you say, I've given. May we follow the principle of not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing and worshiping the Lord because we see him as glorious and we desire to give to him. I need to hurry. We worship God because of the conscription. We worship God because of his conquering. Notice in verse 10, say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. We worship God because our God reigns. There is perhaps no attribute more compelling to worship God than his sovereignty. Because the sovereignty of God reveals to us our utter dependence on him. Lord, you control everything. You reign over all the earth. Everything is in your hands. I can't help but worship you. I have no hope apart from worshiping you. And my existence as a human and my continuance and sound mind is dependent upon my worshiping of you. It's insane to not worship God, the one who reigns and the one who created you. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this Babylon the kingdom that I created for my honor and my glory. And what happened to him? Spent seven years on his hands and his knees eating grass like a cow. He went insane because he didn't worship God. Went insane because he didn't worship God. And so many of the evils in our society today, we look around and we think, this is just insane. Well, it's insane because that's what happens in the mind that doesn't worship God. God. We worship him because of his conquering. And fifthly, we worship him because of his coming. We worship him because of his coming. Notice verse 13. 
verses, really verses 11 and 12 are responses to the sovereignty of God, the fact that the Lord reigns. When you understand that the Lord reigns, the heavens rejoice, the peoples rejoice, the, the people are joyful. But then notice verse 13. We worship God because of His coming. For He cometh. For He cometh. There's a very unhelpful verse division there. Before the Lord is the concluding thought of verse 12. Let the field be joyful and all that is in there and all that is therein. Let all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh. For he cometh. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. We have not been given the date nor the hour, but it will be a bodily and a visible second coming. And when he comes, he will judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and he will judge the people with his truth. And those who see God as glorious now and those who spend their lives worshiping him now and those who see his beauty now are longing for this coming. We are anticipating this coming. And when this coming comes, we will rejoice at the righteous judgment of our God. But those who do not worship God, those who do not see Him as glorious, though they might think that they have all the riches that this world can afford and that their lives could not be better, they will be condemned at this coming because they did not give the Lord the glory due to His name. So I pray that when He comes, He will find you as one who has loved Him and has worshipped Him, and has delighted in Him. And if you delight in God now, dear Christian, let me just tell you, the joy and the exuberance and, and the passion and the worship that you will experience throughout all eternity will not be comparable to your delight in God in this life. You think, I really like to read my Bible now. Well, one day, you're going to close the written word for the very last time. The very next thing you will see is the incarnate word. And you will spend forever with him. You think, well, it's new to me, but I, I like when we have a hymn sing. I like singing corporate worship. Well, one day, we'll sing the last hymn together. And the hymn writer says, this feeble tongue, it's going to lie silent in the grave, but we're still going to be singing throughout all eternity. You say, I love my church family. I love spending time with them. I love each and every one of you. But oh, how much more we will enjoy one another on that day when we'll be united with all of the redeemed of all of the ages. Our worship here in this church is but a foretaste for glory divine that we will experience throughout all the ages. May God give us a passion for worship. And may he not reign in our damnation, but reign in our salvation Cause us to see him as glorious. Cause us to invigor our hearts with his beauty. May we worship him in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us today. I thank you for this psalm. I know that this message was nothing overly technical. It's very, uh, very just skimming the surface of this psalm. But I pray uh, that you would use a simple message like this to encourage us and convict us and rebuke us and, and enliven our hearts and give us a passion for worshiping you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.